Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have with me Matthew Wolfmeyer and Danielle A. Elliott to discuss their book, Naked Field Notes, A Rough Guide to Ethnographic Writing, published just this year in University of Minnesota Press. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Michael. And Matthew Wolfmeyer is a professor of science and technology studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, uh, with his work focusing on medicine, science, and media in the United States, uh, drawing on history, contemporary experiences, and popular representations of health and illness. Danielle A. Elliott is an associate professor of sociocultural anthropology at York University where she also holds the York Research Chair in Injured Minds and is the Deputy Director of the Graduate Institute for Techno Science and Society. Her current research explores the embodied experience of people living with altered neurostates and knowledge-making practices in the clinic, laboratory, and neurotech industry and their convergences. Um, well, let's go ahead and get started. How did uh, you come to um, write this book, Matt? Yeah, um, well, actually, it was Danielle's idea. Um, I think the at some point in the context of the early onset of the pandemic, we were both looking for kind of collaborative opportunities. And Danielle came up with this idea to put together a volume that would be actual field notes from researchers. And part of the reason that we struck on that was that we both had uneven experiences as graduate students learning ethnographic methods in anthropology and sociology and um that like we had both taught methods courses several times over the years and realized that there wasn't anything like this book that like we weren't able to actually show students what people's field notes look like and so everybody was struggling in the field in order to figure out what the form looks like, but also what the content is. And Danielle really came at it from a maybe more experimental uh, perspective um, than I initially started off as in that like, she was really thinking about all of the kinds of evidentiary work that field workers do. So like taking photographs and making videos and recording sound and drawing and, other uh, even stranger things that are in the book and um and so we started to put together a roster of people that we thought had really cool stuff that they could share and um overwhelmingly people said yes um so the i think everybody was kind of looking for a small pandemic project to contribute to and um it really propelled us through collecting nearly 40 um contributions that really range widely in what they look like and the kinds of perspectives that they come from well matthew that that leads me to the the, um i guess the 
first question that really dig, digs into this book, and you talk about doing field uh, field work and doing field notes and the questions that students oftentimes and and even um, new graduates and trying to maybe try a new method out uh, of uh, you know field work. What is the difference between naked field notes and you know final field notes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, it, I think it's hard to get to in some respects, but one of the things that we saw consistently in both like ethnographic writing in sociology and anthropology is that often you'll see in a like in an article or a book, somebody's reproduction of their field notes. And I became increasingly skeptical that that's what people's field notes actually look like, that they had been worked through over and over again in order to be presentable um, to a more general audience, right? And then the, the challenge with that is that like students look at those things and they think like, oh, I have to be really polished in what I'm writing. You know, like this is a really narrative account. It's really rich. It has all of these details. And the reality is like, that's not how most people write their field notes, right? And, that, um, and so what we really tried to do in collecting all of the stuff that we did was like get the raw data, right? Like how do people actually take their field notes? And so in the book, there's like photographs of people's notebooks um, where you can see the handwriting and all of its glory. Um, and then we transcribe all of that stuff. There's people who have taken field notes on like maps or brochures while they're in a meeting, right? Um, there's all different kinds of ways that people produce these kind of raw or naked field notes, and then they translate it into some other form, right? But we wanted to make sure that we maintained that kind of like rawness in what the field notes look like for the pedagogical reason of like showing people what people actually do in the field. Danielle, did you want to add to that? Yeah, just that, you know, I was thinking about during the copy editing and typesetting process, like this was so unusual to have something really raw in its original form that we had to continually like have this negotiation with copy editors and typesetters. Like, no, no, we want that mistake to be in the text. We want that, that spelling error and that, you know, formatting problem. So it was kind of like, but that's a mistake. We're like, that's how field notes are made. They're just, we make lots of mistakes while we're writing them. Or So we wanted to really keep that form. So it was obviously something unusual also for a press to deal with. Yeah, and it, you know, it's not a, it's not a well-designed production. I, I think field notes are something that, you know, come maybe at the least opportune time. So having to pull out a, uh, maybe even a receipt from a, uh, you know, from a meal that a person ordered and having to write it on the back of that because they don't want to forget later on. But, you know, and, and the transformation of field notes with the addition of technology, like the cell phone and other things like that is just so interesting and, you know, intriguing of how far it's come and, and what it's going to be like tomorrow. But, you know, as a sociologist, I, um, I I always think of the Chicago School and and how um, many of those men would talk about how they have to get their you know boots dirty or or you know they're because it's it's not hanging out in an ivory tower and looking at secondary data or uh, survey results that have, that doesn't require a person to leave their office. But uh, uh, thank you. So my next question, Danielle, is what has been your experience with writing field notes? And when were you first introduced to this process of uh, of writing field notes? Uh, that's a great question. I think that um, I've probably been writing field notes since 
an undergrad. I wouldn't be surprised if it started way back in like my first or second year of, of college. But um, I probably didn't really start focusing on the kind of the art or the practice of writing field notes until my master's degree, where I did some methods training and then did personal observation. And so I was just taking notes all the time. I didn't have the same kind of formal training that Matthew did. I think Matthew had a bit more actual formal training in a classroom setting with somebody. Um, but I remember mostly sort of learning, you know, as you're in the field, going along, trying to think about what what you need to keep track of and what is less important. Um, I actually wish that I had more formal training. Uh, and then in the PhD was the conversation with other PhD students, like, how do you take field notes and learning from other people's practices So people saying, well, I use, you know, a different colored pen that has, the, you know, the, the old fashioned red, blue, black, green at the end, oh, and you yes. could use a different color for whatever you were doing. So that just observation might be in blue, maybe a citation to follow up later might be in red and so on. And so I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I had somebody who used to line their pages carefully in three rows and he would always like get the ruler out. And so he took uh, field notes in that way. And so, yeah, over time, I just started trying to figure out what the best way was for me. Mine are chaotic, but I have probably about 20, over 20 notebooks on my shelf that I used to always use. So I was always a pen and paper, pencil and paper. Uh, recently, I've actually moved to the Remarkable uh, in the past year. And I have to say that has completely transformed my uh, note-taking process. I really love it. And I've convinced about already, I know three other people who've converted to Remarkable um, because it's so easy to kind of, it's so light. So it's like a little notepad. You can just upload it immediately. Uh, it's much more secure. You don't have to worry about sharing field notes or, you know, emailing them to yourself. So I feel like technology, as you mentioned, is really changing my practice. Um, and then, you know, when Matthew and I started talking about the collection, I just started thinking about field notes more as as you know, sort of like an experimental form of writing, this particular genre that we we think is not really a genre of writing, but I come to appreciate it, especially after reading all the entries, that this is a really specific genre of writing and we should celebrate it and not hide them away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I so um as Danielle mentioned, like I had a much more kind of conventional training in um field notes and ethnographic field work. And part of that was because I, I, I came into anthropology late and was convinced to come into anthropology because of ethnography as a method. And when I got to graduate school, the ethnographic methods class in anthropology was like not what I wanted. Um, it was not like rigorous in the way that I expected it to be. And so I went over to the sociology department and took a methods course there and it was really interesting to see the difference between like how anthropologists talk about field notes and how sociologists talk about it part of that was that i was being trained by a sociologist who was part of like a multi-pi multi-researcher project where people were sharing their field notes with one another and so the burden of like transparency was really intense where like they needed to be able to read my graduate student field notes for their project, right? And so I couldn't use a lot of shorthand. I needed to be really explicit about stuff. I needed to focus my attention on particular kinds of things, you know, like it was really regimented. And in class, we publicly shared our field notes with one another. We had like ongoing 
research projects over the course of a semester. And like we got to see what people were doing right and wrong. And it was really helpful in like bootstrapping people into like taking really rigorous field notes. Um, the like irony of it is that like Danielle, we reproduced the copy of Danielle's field notes in the book, but I couldn't find mine because we were in the process of a move. And it was only after we moved that I found <laughs> a box of old field notes. And it, the striking thing to me is that they're consistent across time that like, regardless of the project, I've kind of maintained the same form. Wow. And I, I haven't made the technological shift that Danielle has. And it's been kind of interesting and talking with all the contributors that like who has and who hasn't made different kinds of technological shifts that like the prevalence of like pen and paper is still really intense. Um, and people seem to supplement it in different ways, you know, that they use their phones to record like sound it. or interviews, but like, or take supplementary pictures, but it's very rare that people are taking all of their field notes on some kind of electronic device. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think it's one of the things that we need to think about from a kind of pedagogical standpoint is like, how do we integrate all of these things into teaching people how to take field notes, right? That like, the landscape has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And, you know, we were trained on pen and paper in some way, or we like worked our way through pen and paper, but now we're really at a moment where we need to think uh, like how to integrate all of these different modalities and support ethnographic fieldwork. Well, and how it, how it impacts just participant observation, you know, <laughs> whether it checks you out and makes you more of a observer participant than a, than a participant not observer and uh, just trying to figure out what the, what a good balance would look like. You know, Clifford Geertz is still my, my hero in, in anthropology with, you know, thick grits description and all of that. So, uh, I, I, and I wonder how much of that can be done when, when technology and a screen is in your face, mm -hmm. but yeah. So then uh, my next question uh, for Danielle is, are there are there specific rules to how field notes are created and and, and what is supposed to be in the field notes? Um, it's funny, like I want to say no, but of course when I teach, I'm I my students always complain that I'm always like, no, that's not really a field note. That's not really a field note. I think what the book does is shows that there are no rules, that there are all kinds of different ways to take field notes, depending on, you know, the context and your preference and your training, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, clearly there is something different about a field note than a journal entry or a diary entry. Uh, you know, they are, they are, they are for us to remember what happened in the field. So we have to create, I think, a type of detail that, uh, we wouldn't in other forms of writing, like a journal or a, um, a diary. Um, so I think probably there's something sort of specific about it, maybe not necessarily rules, but um, I have a team project right now. So I have a bunch of graduate students, PhD students in clinics doing ethnographic work. And I'm really sad that I'm not actually in the field doing the work and instead the students are doing it. So when I'm describing to them, like, no, I need more of this and I need more of this. Like I want to read your field note and feel like I was there so I can really understand like what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling. Um, so I have been, so I guess I have specific expectations for my students in terms of what they're including. 
But again, it's for a particular, you know, outcome so that I can feel like I was there. Whereas most, maybe we don't always need those type of field notes. I don't know, Matthew? Yeah, I, I've become more and more skeptical of Clifford Geertz and his contribution to ethnographic writing. <laughs> I, um, and, and I think part of it is that like, like Danielle's getting it, you know, like we really privilege a certain kind of descriptive mode um, over other kinds of ways of taking field notes, right? And it attunes our attention in particular kinds of ways that lead to the reproduction of certain kinds of que like research questions and ways to answer them. I think especially in the anthropology where like at this post-Geertzian moment where like there's so much description and ethnographic writing and I'm always like, but like, how is this evidence? Like, how is this yeah. evidence of what you're trying to argue, right? And I, I think we are often seduced by description over evidence, right? Uh -huh. And the I think it's one thing to like really get students to start with that kind of wide board description and then really hone themselves into thinking about, well, like what parts of this experience are actually pertinent to the kind of research question that I have, right? And one of the things that is, is like really apparent when you look at all of the stuff that we've collected in the volume is like that kind of descriptive mode is actually pretty rare for most people. Like most of the field notes that we have are, they would not meet the Geertzian test of thick description. Um, and, you know, they might be more impressionistic. They might be really targeted, right? They're like, because of the kinds of context that people are working in, that descriptive mode doesn't make a ton of sense. Like <clears throat> some of the contributors are working in, like contact, like really bureaucratic contexts where like the once you've described the space, you don't really need to describe it again. It's not constantly in flux, right? Um, and so you can really lend your attention to looking at specific interactions. And so I, I think in that way, there's like a real agnosticism in the collection about like the right and wrong way to do field work, right? Or like the right and wrong way to produce field notes. And I think that like we really try and demonstrate that like how you do it is really dependent on the kinds of research questions that you have and the kinds of context that you're working in, right? Like you were saying earlier, it it doesn't always make sense to like pull out a notebook and a pen, right? And it doesn't always make sense to pull out a camera, but it might make a lot of sense to mark up a document that somebody has handed to you, right? Or to like run back to your hotel or wherever you're living and write up some kind of description of a bunch of events, right? And that like, we need to be much more ecumenical about like how we think about what goes into a field note and be much more responsive to like the research needs of people and the social context that people are doing all of that work in. Um, I mean, there's great stuff. I think that one of the things that I was really surprised by in putting the book together is just like how weird it all is on some level um, and seeing a bunch of people's like unprocessed field work. It's like, there's a little exuberance to it, right? That it's like really 
a wide variety of possible expressions. And like Danielle was saying, there is kind of a genre to it, um, but you would you would not know it from the outside in some respects because we talk about it so clinically often, but like when you actually look at all of the stuff, you see like what an experimental form it is and how people are really wrestling with it. Um, and they like that we haven't talked about it yet, but all of the field notes are like accompanied by somebody's the the author of those field notes has been invited to write a little essay about their field notes. And so they're contextualizing what they're doing and kind of thinking through their process um, and in helping people understand why it is that they take the field notes that they do. You know, this led me to this uh, um, additional question uh, that I think is worth asking. As ethnography has transformed, there's this, um, call it new field, just because it's been around uh, longer, uh, it has not been around as long as ethnography has been. But, uh, you know, Danielle, what about autoethnography? You're talking about journals not being a traditional form of uh, maybe field notes and, and not being the way in which... Uh, yeah, field notes are, are necessarily written because it, 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 it maybe has a different uh, outcome in mind. But what are your thoughts on autoethnography? Sure, I could maybe jump in on that. I mean, I actually have a double special section under review right now on autoethnography with American Anthropologist. So we have, uh, I think, 14 shorter papers as well uh, that are all somehow autoethnographic. And we had a session at the American Anthropology Association a year, over a year ago in Seattle, where we kind of uh, started the conversation. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there is, a, you know, a relationship to, obviously, to autoethnographic writing. I mean, I guess um, I take field notes on my own life as well, because I'm writing about injury now that is related yeah. to my own experience. Um, but I think that... I think for me, the interest in autoethnography and ethnographic memoir and intimate ethnography, which is sort of these three labels we often hear um, getting moved on, is about a, a more accessible writing, about you know writing in a way that really extends beyond the academy, using personal narratives to touch people who are maybe not necessarily used to reading anthropology. So it does seem like partly just about this type of writing that is more about stories and more engaging. I think that's what we found with a lot of the papers that uh, are in this double special section anyways. But Matthew could probably add more. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I wanted Danielle to talk more about the brain injury stuff and maybe she will, but um, the... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that on some level, it's like the natural outcome of the reflexive turn um, that we've, we constantly have been living through maybe. Um, and that like really thinking about representativeness and generalizability, like it makes a ton of sense that people are really centering themselves as reflexive knowledge producers and, you know, doing that kind of autoethnographic work. Um, I, you know, Danielle and I both worked in that mode in different kinds of ways. I think that especially in anthropology, there's a really intense interest in like positionality. Um, and, you know, everybody, every anthropologist thinks that other anthropologists have some personal relationship to anything that they do. And so you need to be able to center that all the time, right? Um, Sociologists have it too. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And, you know, like on some level, we do have like personal stakes in everything that we do, right? But like, it's often the case that it's more or less intense. And, 
being able to narrate that and also situate ourselves in those contexts is really critical. But, you know, what we're talking about when we're thinking about autoethnography is really the next step in that, right? That we're like moving into these other modalities <clears throat> that really center us as researchers and as representative of something, right? So the, um, I think the most autoethnographic I've worked is in the this little book called Theory for the World to Come, which really narrates like, uh, like my biography and its relationship to speculative fiction and how different things that I've read over time inform everyday practice and how I understand the world, right? And, um, you know, it's narratively different than a lot of my straightforward ethnographic writing because, like, I'm really centering myself and my reading and viewing practices and, and that kind of thing. And I think that the 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 main difference for me is that like instead of positionality i'm really thinking about myself as a character right that like i need to be a rounder character in an autoethnographic situation than i am when i'm just describing my positionality right or my motivations and so like creating a narrative that's really structured around my character is a different kind of ethnographic project than one where like i'm positioned but i'm at some remove from the action, right? Oh, I see that as being hyper-reflexive. I've never done it. My, never done an autoethnography myself, but I could only imagine how transformative it would be to get to know yourself in such a uh, intense way. Yeah. Danielle, do you want to talk about the time travel essay? I, I, I want to... It could also be really awkward, I think, yeah. uh, to have to be self-reflexive. I think that I proposed a project that would, you know, use a brain injury, uh, an accident I had when I was doing uh, field work in Kenya. I thought, oh, this would be interesting. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to really use this experience to, you know, uh, talk about neurology and, and how it's quite different in different locations in the world. But then when every time I tried to write about my experience, I had a really hard time with it. Um, and somebody invited me to do a paper in a journal. And he said, you know, this journal actually has a... Uh, really um they like they you can do creative essays it doesn't have to be an academic essay and he said i'm inviting you because i know you like to do creative work and so i was like oh great i'll write about you know my brain injury and um and it was really hard i sat and you know stared at the computer day in day out and i was like how am i going to write this and then someone said oh you write it in third person and i was like well that's weird uh, how could I write, you know, a memoir in third person? But then I was like, okay, I'm just going to try this. And I wrote this little piece that was like kind of two me's, uh, you know, the the future me and the old me. And uh, it was like a little science-y, fiction-y. And it was really, it was really fun to write. And it gave me a freedom to write about myself in a way that I have not been able to do otherwise. So when I'm trying to write in I guess the more traditional anthropology mode, I'd, I haven't been able to, but writing about yourself is, a, you know, kind of a science fiction character uh, was quite fun. Yeah, it was quite fun. And I think it, the paper was really short um, and I think it turned out relatively well. So, so I'm not sure about like this, the, like I felt that it was a really challenging process and it was only when I could think of myself as a character was I able to like, okay, I can do this now. And and then it freed really, freed, it, it flowed very easily, sorry. And then just finding the importance or significance in the event, and and, and because oftentimes I know my own personal experiences, like I, oh, that's not that important. Nobody really cares about that. But you know, there's a lot of personal experiences that are that are worth writing about. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, I think that there's also a kind of like therapeutic mode that we enter into, right? And that part of, which I don't want to diminish, but like, you know, part of what we're doing when we're doing auto-ethnographic work is really working through like social forces on us as individuals, right? And that being able to really name them and describe them is helpful in, in some kind of cathartic model, right? Matt, this next question is really on perspective. Are field notes a direct reflection of what happens in the field or are field notes a reflection or intersubjective observation that we make while in the field? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the challenge is like, we think that it's the first one, but it's actually the second one. Um, that like often in our ethnographic training, people try to like metabolize this idea that they're really objective observers. And even when we're like emphasizing the importance to think about positionality and subjectivity and critiques of the objectivity, right? There's still this enormous burden because of this, you know, like ethnography as a social science method that like what we're doing is empirically objective, right? And that, it, and this is what part of my problem with Clifford Geertz, right? That like the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you're, you know, uh, omniscient, right? And you you can't possibly do that. And so you have to acknowledge the reality that like everything is going to be partial in some way and everything is going to be framed by the observer, but also kind of disciplinary interests, right? That like I in my ethnographic training, I was really interested in how I was like working with us, a graduate student who was a sociologist and she would see one thing and I would see something else. Right. And it was entirely because we had been primed in our disciplinary training to like think about specific kinds of things. Right. And I was like always directing my attention to the wrong thing from a sociological perspective right and just acknowledging that was really important because like we we needed to square what we were doing as a team um but it was really helpful to know that like oh there really is a disciplinary difference and it gets meted out through like these kinds of fieldwork interactions right um yeah danielle do you want to add to that uh, no, I mean, uh, I think uh, I think of um, I guess I was thinking about field notes and in, in kind of has in terms of how they progress, right? So in the beginning, and thinking about the students who are doing the field notes for me right now, right in the beginning, they're just doing these really descriptive notes. So I said like the first kind of eight days you go down, I just want like you to really be focusing on what you're seeing, hearing, you know. Uh, what are the doctor and the patients talking about? But then as they go on, I ask them to start transforming their field notes a bit, right? So less literal, they can start talking about like themes and patterns and talking about their own experiences and relations. So I feel like it partly just changes over time. Like as Matthew said, you can only write, you know, notes on the space so many times in a clinic until obviously those field notes are going to change into something very different. Um, so I think it just, they, they transform over time. So they're never just one thing. It just kind of depends on the context, but sometimes they're completely descriptive and literal and other times there's something else going on. Well, I think the, yeah. most, that, I think the most valuable notes are those uh, that have to do with relationships that are occurring in the field. Like mm -hmm. those are the things that are, that are transforming and changing across time. And, uh, you know, there is that, um, 
piece of the relationship where you build uh, build a rapport with the audience that you're that you're uh, dealing with out in the field. So and, and always understanding positionality and where you stand in accordance with the rest of the group, because mm-hmm. there's always that there's that gaze and and knowing that somebody's in the field may may alone change the behavior that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, in looking at a lot of the field notes in the volume, you you get a really clear sense of people working through that transition, right? Where there's some field notes that are really descriptive. There's some field notes that are really about interactions between people. There's like intensely personal field notes that are like less about what happened out in the world and more about what happened to the researcher. Um, and I, you know, I think one of the things that we really want to embrace is this idea that like all of those are valid ways of writing, right? And that we need a wider breadth of, um, or a permission structure to really authorize people working in different kinds of modalities across, you know, whatever the research project is, but also, you know, working from an awareness of what is possible field note wise in order to change what's possible kind of research question wise. And then digesting it when going into the whole coding process too. I mean, making sense of what you saw, but that's another, that's yeah. another stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that, well, and that's one of the pedagogical things that we had thought about with the book is that like they're uncoded field notes, right? So like you could, in the classroom, you could take these field notes and try and code them for yourselves, right? That like, that they're totally unprocessed in that respect. And so it gives people an opportunity to kind of like interpret them how they want, right? And that the essays that people have provided give you one way to interpret them, but it's not the only possibility. We're always writing in past tense. That's something that a lot of people don't get. Like what we saw then may not be what we see tomorrow. (laughs) So the final question, uh, Danielle, what, what do you think the future is for writing field notes? I'm going to um, add on to this that, I, you know, I once heard that Howard S. Becker, um, rest in peace, from the University of Chicago, sent his graduate students out into the field to take notes. He encouraged them to wherever they were to go to take as many pages of field notes as they could. And if they didn't meet that match, then he would recommend they take a different course because it's just not going to work out for them. So what do you think uh, the future for field notes and uh, training our graduate students is going to be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, maybe uh, before I sort of answer more directly, I could there when we invited people to contribute to the volume, uh, you know, we had a wide range of responses. For the most part, people were like, oh, wow, cool. I, I would love to do that. Let me look through and dig through. And people were, even now, I, I people have been messaging this week because I've been following up on addresses and I get these funny, like, oh, it's so great to go back and read through the, through the field notes, I've been doing it more and more since I contributed to the essay. So people have engaged in their field notes um, in a different way, or I think, again, but some people did say, uh, no, I couldn't share my field notes. Uh, no, my field notes are like too messy, too bad, too old, they wouldn't be useful. And we did have somebody say, you know, I don't take field notes in the field um, for reasons of, you know, ethics, basically. And so, 
that was interesting for me to think about because I just thought like somebody who has a memory problem what would it mean for me to be in a field site where I thought it was unethical or not appropriate for me to do field notes like I wouldn't be able to remember enough later on to write up my notes so I for me it's like a matter of like I, I necessity I, I need to continue doing field notes because I don't have the greatest memory and because of an injury um but it is also an interesting question to think like maybe they're just like maybe field notes along with field work dare I say you know are are I don't know, transforming and uh, maybe not appropriate as much as they used to be. Like I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between field notes and field work, I think since we did this book and thinking, oh, you know, what does it mean to do field work? And it does feel like such a bizarre thing, right? That we get up, go off somewhere, whether it's to a clinic in Toronto or to a field site in East Africa, um, and to expect that people will open their arms and let us observe them, shadow them, you know, engage, talk to them about intimate questions or non-intimate questions. And so I do wonder about just the, the whole role of field work. And then of course, what that would mean for field notes as we move forward. I, I don't have an answer. Um, I think that hopefully what our book does is, is get people thinking more about field notes and maybe we'd see more field notes. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking, uh, you know, how how close can is genealogy to to field work and field notes, and you know, genealogy seems to be one that is reflected on, at least in the United States, uh, pretty positively. It's like being a memory keeper and uh, collecting a past that uh, that is almost you know nostalgic. Right. Yeah, I don't know, Matthew. Yeah, I well, I. Um... I mean, I think that, like, Danielle kind of talked about one possible future for field notes earlier and thinking about how technology is shaping what we're doing, right? And it, it may really be the case that, like, the more we technologize things, the less we actually do field work in the traditional sense. Um, and that some of our contributors really are adhering to old models of field note taking because they want to keep field work the same in a way, right? That like they, they're they working in context and they're used to context where you can like whip out a notebook and write down some notes, right? Um, and, uh, but I, I think that the challenge is like, we do have all of these technological capacities now and it does change the kinds of ethnographic modalities that we can work in. And it might also change the field sites that we work in, right? That like, <clears throat> it's a lot easier to go to public events and record them in their entirety now than it used to be. And that's going to necessarily change how people are doing ethnographic work if they have a video that they can rely on for a near total capture of the events, right? And the kind of descriptive work. Oh, like virtual, and, like virtual ethnography. Uh, yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, um, and, so I think we need to reckon with that kind of technological transformation. And it's not something that people are really like um, taking seriously in it, the entirety of its ramifications. Um, and we probably need to have more conversations about that. And, and as Danielle is saying, like the ethics of it, that like one of the things that 
I was always like struggling with in anthropology is that like, I'm an Americanist. I have a really hard time thinking about like any kind of ethnographic work in a non-US context. I mean, I work with like pretty much upper middle-class white people um, and that feels relatively ethically sound to me. They understand where I'm coming from. They know why I'm there. Um, maybe not in its entirety, but like they get it. There's not a lot of, you know, extractivism or exploitation in what I'm trying to do, but it's really hard to see a lot of other anthropological fieldwork outside of the U.S. as abiding by that same kind of ethical standard, right? And as we like technologize our fieldwork, it gets like even more tricky ethically, Um and, you know, I, it, there's no, like, I don't want to be a moralist about it all, right? There's, like, no right answer to it. But mm -hmm. I think that having that question front and center for us as we develop research projects and as we try and integrate different kinds of modalities is really important because people need to be struggling with it. Like, they need to recognize that these are ethical situations and that they they need to think really seriously about like what they're doing and how they're doing it and the kinds of media that they're using in order to achieve their, their aims. And what is consent? That's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, mean, I, I think there's a huge debate around consent that we need to have. Yeah. Dania. No. And I, I think that even among our sort of, you know, middle upper class white, you know, uh, experts that we might be observing, even some of them are uncomfortable. I mean, I've been in situations, I remember one time, because uh, the first part of my research was in Vancouver, and it was mostly with HIV AIDS experts. And, you know, having a being at a HIV conference during the wine and cheese and having a glass of, of white wine and the one of the clinicians that I spent a lot of time observing in the clinic said, oh, well, where's your notebook and pen, right? And always kind of making these little uh, jokes about the anthropologists and their field notes. And then also being in Kenya in the backseat of a car with two clinicians that I had, had also observed. And they were telling this great story about, you know, corruption and financial uh, misuse and clinical trials. And they said, wait, is Danielle taking field notes in the backseat? Oh. And so they're, you know, always aware that like mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think yeah they're obviously you know they're joking but it it, it was an indication that they're just like hey this is not a conversation we're necessarily consenting to uh and you know obviously all the note taking made them feel a little a little uncomfortable so yeah it's mm -hmm. something yeah I, I well I, yeah I, I think the other thing to get back to the question Michael that like the the kind of Becker model of like, you're either a born ethnographer or you're not, right? That like, we, you can go dump a graduate student in the South side of Chicago and they're either gonna like come back with six pages of field notes and be an ethnographer for the rest of their life or they're a failure. Is that kind of like exclusive model that we're working against, right? That like, it it's a method, right? And people get trained in a method. And part of that method is like experimentation and failure. And if you're not providing the context where students can fail and then learn how to succeed, then you're just excluding people from a particular kind of practice, right? And 
uh, one of the things that I've always struggled with in the anthropology is this idea that like the the lone ethnographer is a kind of genius, right? That like you go to the field and that your genius is demonstrated by your descriptive powers, right? This is like more of my grudge against Clifford Geertz, I guess. Yeah. But um Well, I'm not very I've had Gary yeah. Allen on my show two or three times and he pumps up books like it's nothing else, like it's no problem. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ethnography has been something like, okay, what do I write? And it's an ongoing struggle. Some people are natural at it, but that doesn't uh, remove people who aren't as natural at it from the, you know, from, from, from the playground, you know, mm-hmm. keep working at it. Eventually, eventually you'll find a field where the notes come natural. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it's a skill. And like other skills, people need to experiment and learn over time, right? And that like, we we need to be really attentive to the need to actually train people to do this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think that like losing some of the pretense around the method is a really important thing. So um, I, I think maybe the next book is that part two on coding of the uh, of, of those field notes and, and and the right way of coding or or the different ways of coding, not the right way, the different ways of coding. But uh, I, I don't. Want the, go ahead. I want the sorry. I want the next one to be just an entire book full of photographs from the field. Yes. Yeah. We're we're, we're talking about a coffee table book. Um, but but I guess on a a serious note that's this is always the final question that I have for uh for my guests what are you working on now um Danielle maybe you start uh what am I working on now I'm working on hopefully a, a mixed genre monograph about uh, the experiences of brain injuries. So a little bit of science fiction, a little bit of creative nonfiction, ethnography, and some creative fiction. Um, again, yeah, have real, the real interest in trying to, you know, blend genres and uh, play play with writing strategies and in anthropology a bit more. Um, so that's, I'm starting sabbatical in July. So that's where I'll, I'll spend the, the sabbatical trying to do some writing. Excellent. Please keep me updated on the progress of that book. I'd love to have you back on the show for your for your next uh, um, for your next edition. Yeah. And Matthew, what are you working on? Um, kind of nothing right now. Um, the, I have a new book that comes out in May called American Disgust, which is about the um, which is ostensibly about microbial medicine, but it tells this history of like why people are disgusted by biological products and their relationship to racism in the United States. Um, And then there's this other little book that comes out um, called Proposals for a Caring Economy, which is a real critique of economistic modes of thinking about um, why we structure society the way that we do and has contributions from a bunch of people who really want to center other ways of thinking about like how we deal with the environment and sustainability and the arts and epidemiology and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, And so, and then there's, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in the pipeline and I'm looking forward to getting back to actually doing field work, but um, it might be a little time still. We'll share that. uh, If you'll share that information with me, I would love to have you on the, the show for your work as well. Sure. All right. Well, thank you again, uh, Danielle and Matthew, for being on the on the show today. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. 
Thanks, Michael. Uh, again, this has been a, another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.